Hello and welcome back to the Europolex podcast, the home of unprofessional accidental breaks in our podcasting schedule. I'm Ewan Healy and with me, of course, is my very good friend, Gabriel Hedengren. Hi, Ewan. How are you? Finally, we're back. Yes, back. Back on the airwaves um, after a brief hiatus. We apologize for that, but that does mean that this is an extra bumper episode of the Europolex podcast with lots of extra uh, news stories for you guys to hear from the last month's worth of news all in one go. Yeah, it's been really busy and lots of national elections, lots of politics, obviously, at the European level. Uh, everyone will be aware of the most uh, important stuff that's happened. Uh, but yeah, I'm, it, I'm excited to, to go through all the electoral events especially. Absolutely. And of course, at the end of the podcast, we've got all the polling highlights. And that's going to be even more than usual because it's an entire month's worth. Before we do all of that, here's a little message about how you can support this podcast. If you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whichever platform you listen to us on, including now with Spotify's all new rating system on Spotify. And of course, tell your friends about us. That would mean the absolute world, of course. Also, if you have an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic we should be covering, or of course, if you just want to say hi, drop us an email at podcast at europolex.eu. Also, Europolex now has merch. Do you want to support us? Are you a polling election nerd like us and just want everybody to know about it? Head on to europolex.redbubble.com and check out all the mugs, maps, t-shirts, stickers, and more that we are producing for you. We're really excited about it and our team is working on more designs all the time. Let us know how you like them. We at Europolex are run wholly by volunteers. We aren't funded by big donors and everything we do, including this very podcast here, is only possible with the help of our supporters. And of course, we always want to carry on what we're doing and do so much more. We've started sharing exclusive discussions, special content, and more via our Patreon. Access all of it from as little as one euro a month. Don't miss out and support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. We start our tour of electoral developments in Hungary, where Katalin Novak, supported by Prime Minister Viktor Orbán's Fidesz, was, as expected, elected as the new president of Hungary, becoming the first woman to rise to the position which we discussed in the previous episode. Novak beat the candidate of the opposition's United for Hungary coalition, Peter Rona, by 137 out of 199 votes and 72.9%, that is, against 51 votes and 27.1% for Rona, so a decisive victory. Novak, a former deputy chair of Fidesz and former family affairs minister, who will also be the youngest president to date at 44, is due to take office on May 10th, succeeding Fidesz two terms incumbent Janos Ader. As is the case in many parliamentary democracies, the president of Hungary has mostly ceremonial powers, uh, playing a symbolic role in the nation's politics, and her election could be seen as a pre-election boost for Orban, even though it was largely a foregone conclusion due to Fidesz's dominance in the National Assembly at the moment, where, together with its ally, the Christian Democratic People's Party, it holds 133 out of 199 seats. As I mentioned, Hungary has national parliamentary elections coming up. The latest polls on those elections, which you can peruse at your leisure on the Europolex website, and you'll get them live in your feed if you follow us on Twitter. They're currently pointing to a close race between the governing alliance and the opposition alliance, which is basically a rainbow coalition uh, of 
parties opposing Orban. So it's more about opposing him than being for something else. Uh, Fidesz um, has widened their lead slightly in recent weeks. And um, there's also questions about various issues with the elections in terms of potential fraud. So that will all be monitored closely. We'll be reporting on that, of course, at Europolex. The elections take place on April 3rd. So by the time you hear this, uh, it's probably ongoing or you'll just have the results. On the same day as those elections in Hungary, neighbouring Serbia will also be heading to the polls with quite a few elections on the cards as they'll be holding their national parliamentary elections, their presidential elections and their local elections all on one Super Sunday. The ruling right-wing SNS seems to be in place to handily win once again, but will suffer a significant loss of vote share and seats, which does, of course, make sense since almost all opposition parties had boycotted the elections last time in 2020. This time around, the opposition has united, as in Hungary, and the United Serbia coalition hopes that they'll be able to at least manage to push the incumbent president, Aleksandr Vucic, down to 50% and a second round vote. We should note that based on the latest VDEM index and regimes of the world classification system, both Serbia and the aforementioned Hungary are classified as electoral autocracies and the election processes that are taking place amid complaints about the voting conditions there. Here at Europolex, we will, of course, be covering all these elections. So gear up for a very, very busy Electoral Sunday on our social media feeds. That will start off a month of elections in a big way. So from upcoming elections, let's go to some that have just taken place. Uh, The most recent national parliamentary elections were in Malta. Uh, The Maltese electorate went to the polls on March 26th and decided to give the ruling centre-left Labour Party uh, another majority with actually sort of comically small changes uh, in terms of voting support. In fact, the party received 55.1% and 38 seats, which is just one more seat than in 2017. The centre-right Nationalist Party, on the other hand, received 41.7% with 29 seats, losing one seat compared to 2017, as you might have guessed. No other party managed to receive representation in Parliament. So following the result, Roberta Abela was re-elected as Prime Minister of Malta. It looks like the centre-left ruling party may have managed to move forward from the political crisis of 2019 that led to the resignation of Joseph Muscat, Abela's predecessor. So again, remarkable feat for the Maltese Labour Party. It's their third election win in a row, despite you know huge corruption scandals and lots of negative stories a few years ago. And I believe that it's actually one of the biggest margins ever uh, in a Maltese elections between the two main parties. Malta is such a remarkable country in, in many ways for its politics. One particularly remarkable thing being the scale of the elections, it being such a small country, each sort of member of parliament there in Malta representing the same as about what you would expect from a sort of a, a city councillor in uh, most European countries. It's quite a remarkable electoral system. And to somewhat break the trend of incumbents retaining their position, we go to Germany, where on the 27th, the country's smallest Landtag, that's regional parliament, headed to the polls. The Landtag of Saarland had a grand coalition government with the centre-right CDU and centre-left SPD forming a cabinet led by the CDU's Tobias Hans. In contrast to the usual dynamics of German politics, the incumbent centre-right party saw significant losses and fell to 28.5% and 19 seats, a fall of over 12 percentage points and five seats. On the other hand, its coalition partner rose to 43.5% and 29 seats, gaining close to 14% and 12 seats. 
In addition, the right-wing alternative for Deutschland managed to retain its three seats, although falling slightly in vote share. And other than the CDU, the other loser of the election was the left-wing Die Linke party that saw its vote share collapse from 12.9% to just 2.6% and thus losing all of their seats because they fell below the threshold of the regional parliament. Die Linke's performance is both a continuation of its low national results, but even more so a product of the party's founder, Oscar Lafontaine, leaving the party and calling on its supporters to not vote for it. Lafontaine had in the past served as minister-president of Saarland, back then being a member of the centre-left SPD party, and is actually the region's longest-serving head of government. So his exit from Die Linke has played a significant role in the vote here in Saarland. Following the result, the SPD's candidate, Anke Rehlinger, will most likely form a government with no coalition partner, as her party has secured an absolute majority. This will be the first single-party government in the state since the 2009 elections that saw the first Jamaica coalition in Germany. Now for some local election news, we go to the Netherlands, where municipal elections took place on March 16th. Dutch municipal politics are quite remarkable as they are predominantly, you know, very local affair. There are more than 800 parties that took part in these elections, and the vast majority of them stand in just a single municipality. In fact, in the last elections in 2018, local parties were the main winners with 28.7% of the vote. And some analysts have argued that the local parties may have gotten an even higher share of the vote this time around. And that indeed turned out to be the case. Local parties ended up getting 35.9% of the total vote across the country, which is obviously more than a third, which is remarkably high. The ruling Liberal VVD was the runner-up with 11.6% uh, nationally, and that's the party of Mark Rutte, the Prime Minister of the Netherlands. The centre-right Christian Democratic Appeal came third with 11.2% of the vote. Again, it's a funny thing with Dutch politics that you can come uh, second place with uh, less than 12% uh, when there are so many different parties. As for the major cities of the Netherlands, the centre-left UVDA, the Green Groenlinks, and the Liberal D66 were the main winners in Amsterdam, while the latter two were also winners in Utrecht. In The Hague and Rotterdam, local parties remained in the lead, with Liefbach Rotterdam and Hartford and Haag, Grop de Moos, retaining their dominance in its respective city. Another significant story was the historically low turnout in these elections. Only 50.3% of the electorate decided to cast a vote this time around, and this is down uh, almost 4% from 54% in the 2018 elections. So very splintered picture across the Netherlands with local parties being the ones best at mobilizing voters this time around. Uh, that would be the main takeaway from the Dutch local elections. Moving away from electoral news for a bit, we go to Spain, where a deal has been struck in the Spanish region of Castilla and León between the incumbent centre-right People's Party and the national conservative Vox. The deal came following weeks of conflict amid the People's Party's national leadership crisis, and almost a month after the party's decision to call regional elections failed to produce the absolute majority it had hoped for in Castilla and León. Although the centre-right party came first in the regional election, it was still 10 seats shy of governing without the support of another party. In the previous election, Partido Popular had formed a coalition government with the Liberal Party, Ciudadanos, that lost in this election 11 of its 12 seats. The centre-left party, PSOE, headed by the Prime Minister, Pedro Sánchez, proposed abstaining in favour of People's Party-led government in the Castilian-Leonese region, 
in exchange for the Partido Popular rejecting radical right support and putting an end to all PP Vox reached agreements throughout the country. As it became clear that no compromise could be agreed between these two big national parties and the regional centre-right and centre-left parties, the People's Party accepted to give the regional vice-presidency, three regional ministries and the speakership of the Castilian Leon Parliament to Vox, which will become a member of the regional Spanish government for the first time. This, of course, makes one wonder this could become a trend in Spanish politics on all level, emphasised by an increasingly polarised political scenario in Spain between the left bloc composed of the centre-left PSOE and the left-wing Unidas Podemos and the right-wing established PP Vox right bloc. Now we go to Denmark, where a multi-party agreement was reached on one of the most pressing issues in Danish politics, namely the relationship between Denmark and the EU. Following the Maastricht Treaty coming into place in 1992, Denmark got four opt-outs from the agreement, one of them covering the common security and defence policy, which has obviously become highly relevant given Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Following the invasion, Mette Frederiksen, the Danish Prime Minister from the Social Democratic Centre-Left Party, called a referendum to abolish this opt-out. The government pledged increased defence spending by 7 billion Danish crowns over the next two years, which is calling the largest investment in recent decades into the military. The Prime Minister also set out plans to increase spending to 2% of GDP in line with NATO membership requirements by 2033. The referendum will take place on June 1st, and except for the far-left and far-right parties in Denmark, the rest of the parliament endorses the yes vote. Yes vote has been leading the polls, but the lead has been shrinking somewhat, so it'll be interesting to see what the situation is at the start of June. And it's interesting to know regionally as well, the shift that's happening. Obviously, there's Sweden and Finland currently debating uh, their relationship with NATO and similarly pledging to also reach this 2% goal of military spending as part of GDP. So lots of policy change and step change in the Nordics following the invasion of Ukraine. It definitely looks like the Russian invasion of Ukraine could have pretty wide-reaching consequences for EU and NATO defence policy in the coming decades, that's for sure. Now, speaking of relationships of member states with the European Union, the four largest political groups of the European Parliament have reached an agreement on a proposed change to the EU's electoral law, which would create a new category of 28 MEPs who would be elected through a pan-European list, in addition to the existing 705 MEPs which are allocated on the basis of each nation-state's population size. According to a report by Euractiv, which quotes a tweet by German MEP and Volt co-founder Damien Berzelager, the compromise on 28 pan-European MEPs was reached after negotiations between the centre-right EPP, the centre-left S&D and the liberal Renew Europe group, as well as the Greens. This compromise pretty much guarantees that the changes will be approved in the European Parliament's plenary if they get wide support from all of their group members. The agreement, according to Berzelager, allows for any parties and movements to participate given they collect the signatures of 0.01% of voters in seven member states and build coalitions with national parties and also provides either for a quota of 50% female candidates or the obligation for men and women to be listed alternately on tickets often referred to as zipped lists. 
The EU Parliament Committee on Constitutional Affairs subsequently voted in favour of this proposal, brought by S&D rapporteur Dominic Ruiz de Vesa, that also includes the formation of a European electoral authority, an electoral threshold of at least 3.5% for larger constituencies, and the selection of May 9th, which is Europe Day, as the common European voting day. The European Parliament will, of course, have to vote on these proposals and, of course, will have to be presented before the European Council. Speaking of the European Parliament, we should also mention that we have seen some changes there as well, with member of the European Parliament, Salih Mayenbu of Cap Ecologie, leaving the Greens EFA group and joining the Liberal Renew Europe instead. Centre-right Greek MEP Georgios Kyrtsos has been suspended for six months from the European People's Party, which is the centre-right group in the European Parliament. He was previously expelled from his national party, the Centre-Right New Democracy, following his continued criticism towards Prime Minister Mitsotakis and his government, especially regarding matters of rule of law. He plans to continue to sit with the EEP as he serves his suspension. And finally, we once again go to one of our favourite segments on this podcast, our polling highlights. And we begin this week in Denmark, where the right-wing Danish People's Party fell to 4.3% in a very recent Voxmeter poll. This is an at least 10-year record low, and if repeated in an election, will be the party's worst ever result since its founding in 1995. For another record low, we go to neighbouring Norway, where the centrist Agrarian Centre Party received 6.6 in a Norstat poll. This is the party's lowest polling result since January of 2017, and a significant fall from last September's election, where it received 13.5%, which at that time was also a disappointment in comparison to how they were polling earlier in the year. We now go to Greece, where a party that we mentioned in our last episode as well has got another new entry on our polling highlights list. The far-right EGTP reached an all-time high with 2.9% in a Metron analysis poll. Now, of course, the national electoral threshold in Greece is at 3%, so this breakaway party seems to be getting closer to entering the national parliament. It is, as always, worth noting that EGTP's leader is in prison for running a criminal organization as he was spokesperson and former MP of the neo-Nazi party Golden Dawn. And now we go to Belgium, which is actually seen an opinion poll published. There's an Ipsos poll that saw the Dutch-speaking centre-left party Vroeit and the Dutch-speaking Liberal Party Open VLD received record high and record lows, respectively. Beruit reached 14.2%, which is the highest polling result since October 2016. And if it was to be repeated in an election, it would be the party's best result in Flanders since 2010. The ruling Open VLD, on the other hand, fell to 9.8%, which is the lowest polling result ever for the party which was um, disappointing for them, I'm sure. Going now to neighbouring France, where, of course, there is an absolute flurry of polls at the moment, the presidential race being well underway. So at this point in the race, we see the far-right presidential candidate, Eric Zemmour, continue to fall after a pretty meteoric rise early in the race. He's now received a record low with 9% in an opinion well care partners poll. Meanwhile, on the other hand, we see left-wing presidential candidate Jean-Louis Mélenchon reach multiple record highs, with a cluster 17 poll showing him at 16%, his highest polling result since 2018. With the first round taking place on April 10th, it seems that based on the projection, Europe Alexis running in collaboration with Euractive, Emmanuel Macron will be progressing to the second round, and Marine Le Pen is the clear favourite to join him, with 99.8% likelihood. With all the record highs and the recent momentum, Jean-Luc Mélenchon is at just 0.2%, while the other candidates seem to not 
not have a path to the second round at all. These numbers are, of course, subject to change as we're getting closer and closer to election day. And you should keep an eye on the specifics and all the updated numbers on your active's website. And just to be extra helpful, we'll put a link to that website in the notes section of this show. That's all the news and polling highlights we've got time for this week from the continent. Thank you very, very much for listening. We will see you next time. Indeed. Thanks, everyone. We'll do our best to be back in two weeks and not a month this time. We do hope you have a very exciting election-filled week. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. To stay up to date with European politics, make sure you subscribe and, of course, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Telegram, Vcontacta, and YouTube. We're spreading out wherever we can, so do please follow us. There's no excuse not to anymore. You can find us at EuropeLex.eu and at EuropeLex across all social media and at Europe underscore Lex on Instagram. See you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast, hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and my colleague, Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronos Karampolas. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Jorgos Kukouris, Guillaume Ferreira de Senda, Yanis Ashakian, and Yavi Debad. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do wouldn't be possible without our patrons from Patreon. Sweet.